if you divide the world into rich and poor countries, global north and global south, and you net out all the global financial transactions, net transfers, meaning you net you include exports, imports, interest payment, debt payments, charity, foreign direct investment, all the global transactions, financial transactions, including illicit transactions, you find that the global north takes $2 trillion a year from the global south. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a lecturer, a climate corruption reporter, and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists, and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, and political crises that we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Fidel Kaboob. At the time of recording in December 22, Fidel was an associate professor of economics at Denison University and president of the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity. He has since been appointed as Undersecretary General for Financing for Development for the Organization of Educational Cooperation, which is an international intergovernment organization founded by countries from across the global south. I'm delighted to have had the opportunity to speak with Fidel as an academic about all of his research into global economic policy and how to finance a just transition in the global south, which will demand the deconstruction of colonial global policies and a reimagination of international collaboration and cooperation in order to build a sustainable future for everyone. This is a fascinating episode. Fidel really lays out from beginning to end how colonialism is still in practice by the Global North in the Global South, the structural weaknesses that the Global South face, and the fact that their economies will never be able to transition, even develop with these structural weaknesses in place. And the message Fidel leaves us with is that to decarbonize, we need to decolonize. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com or on Patreon. By signing up, you'll also get access to the weekly article I write inspired by each interview. Thank you to everyone who has signed up and is supporting the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who keep the project going every week. One of my uh, mentors and, and, and friends, Stephanie Kelton, who's the author of The, the Deficit Myth uh, on, on this issue, uh, has a beautiful line. She says, you don't, you don't change the world by asking the same questions. You change the world by asking questions differently and different questions to um, change uh, the narrative, change the thinking and, and change the world. All right. So... If you want to change the world, you have to change the questions. What would be the first question that you would ask to make people try and think differently about this situation that we find ourselves in globally? Oh, there's lots of really interesting questions. Uh, the the mm -hmm. fundamental one about that sort of intersects with everything that has to do with policy change and, and addressing critical issues is how do we pay for it? You know, How do we pay mm -hmm. for massive decarbonization uh, of the economy? There's the, the technical aspect. And, and, and the sense of, you know, do we have the technology, the material resources and all of that? Those are very important questions. But typically when you get even the, the kind of the, the climate minded people on board and saying, yes, we need to decarbonize, but too bad, it's too expensive. We don't have the money. 
we're going to bankrupt the country. We're going to cause hyperinflation if we just start spending too much. So we're going to have to, you know, settle down and agree that we're going to have to do this in an incremental way, kind of mm. gradually decarbonize. And I'm always reminded of um, Martin Luther King's uh, famous line in the context of the civil rights movement, where he says, um, I have no time for the tranquilizing drug of gradualism and incrementalism. And I think Ooh. when it comes to the climate crisis, we should be thinking in the same way. These uh, small incremental uh, decarbonization efforts are, are not going to uh, allow us to meet the climate challenge. And, and the data is very mm. clear. The science is very clear. So the question, how do we pay for these massive transformative programs on a global scale in rich countries and not so rich countries? becomes the fundamental question. And, and most of my work in the MMT community, modern monetary theory uh, approach, allows us to think differently about how we pay for things without causing inflation, without bankrupting countries, without a slippery slope into communism or fascism or whatever some, some of the critics sometimes uh, argue. So that's really the, the, the central question that I, that I focus on. And I tend to focus on it by thinking of countries sort of sitting on a spectrum of monetary sovereignty. Some countries have a high degree of monetary sovereignty and economic sovereignty. As a result, they have a much, much larger fiscal spending capacity. And some countries in the global south in particular have very limited uh, degree of monetary sovereignty and as a result have very limited spending capacity. So I focus on what are the things that we can put in place, policies, strategies that allow countries across the world to actually gradually and rapidly increase their fiscal spending capacity so we can prioritize all of the massive transformation that is needed on a global scale? Um, so it turns out that a country's spending capacity is not unlimited. Some people say, oh, MMTers say government can just print money and it's infinite. Absolutely not. If anything, we're obsessed with the idea that it's actually constrained and we're obsessed with what determines that constraint and how can we kind of unleash additional spending without triggering inflation. So the ultimate limit to how much a sovereign government like the US, the UK, Japan, and so on, how much a government can spend safely is the risk of inflation. Meaning you can spend more on strategic uh, areas of the economy to decarbonize, to provide healthcare, you know, the inclusive economic activity, all these social issues. But at some point, your spending is going to transform into income for individuals. And in a free society, those individuals are free to do whatever they want with their income. Typically, mm -hmm. we know what people do with their income. They buy food, transportation, housing, uh, entertainment, the basics, right? So as long as we have sufficient productive capacity to meet this new demand for housing, for energy, for transportation, for entertainment, for clothing, all of the essentials, we know that that additional income is not going to cause inflation because it will be met with the productive capacity that's able to handle that additional demand. So the and, good news sorry. about productive capacity is that it's producible. What, what is productive capacity? So in other words, if, if we have additional demand for healthcare services or additional demand for housing, do we have the productive capacity to build additional housing? Uh, do we have the skilled workers, the raw materials, the technology, the know-how to provide the additional resources? 
And if we don't, if we have a shortage of productive capacity, that additional demand will drive up prices and will cause inflation pressure points. So from an MMT perspective, we should always spend with an eye towards the available productive capacity. If we don't have the productive capacity, then the spending should be building that additional productive capacity and building it in a sustainable way. So if it's housing shortages, if it's energy shortages, if it's transportation shortages, that's our opportunity to spend strategically to increase the capacity to meet the new demand and to meet it with a sustainable green infrastructure and, and, and so on. So as, as I said earlier, the beautiful thing about productive capacity is that it's producible that we can actually create millions of jobs in the process of transforming the economy. And as we do that, we actually push the risk of inflation further out and increase that spending space that we can have without causing inflation. But that's not the only constraint. There is another component that is extremely important of it. And I want to come back later, if, if you don't mind, in this conversation mm, about please. the actual resources needed in the, in the sense you, because yeah. there is a sustainability of resources on a global yeah. scale. Here we're just sketching okay, kind of the, the basic question. But the second component of that risk of inflation is what I call abusive market power. In other words, when you have key players in the economy with market power, with market concentration, who can actually raise prices simply because they can, then your fiscal capacity is going to be constrained. Every time you spend, they're going to leverage. Every time there's additional demand, we've seen this during the pandemic. As soon as there's this, uh, you know, pent up demand that was unleashed right after we reopened the economy, not only did they increase their prices to match the cost of doing business increase, but they widened their profit margins because they can't, because nobody stopped them, right? So how do you deal with that abusive market power? You tax and regulate it out of existence, right? You don't <laughs> implement austerity policies out of fear of their market power. You actually democratize the market by regulating it, by upgrading your antitrust laws. I mean, I live in a country that hasn't upgraded its antitrust laws for a century. And antitrust mm -hmm. laws were put in place when there was no such thing as big tech or big mm -hmm. pharma or Wall Street the way Wall Street is today or, or big oil and all, all of these, you know, uh, components of, of market power are not actually um, checked. And mm. that becomes not just a question of inflation and question of uh, economic issues. This, to me, becomes a question of democracy, because who is responsible for taxing and regulating abusive market power? In the case of the United States, it's the 535 people who sit in Washington, D.C., elected officials that we call lawmakers. That's their responsibility. Mm. But will they tax and regulate the abusive market power? of the hands that feed their campaign contributions, that, uh, that contribute to the status quo of the political system. That becomes a question of democracy. And it's a question of, do we have a government of the people, by the people, for the people, like it was supposed to be, or a government of the super PACs for the super PACs and, and, and by the big farmer and big oil and, and so on. Uh, so the question of inflation is fundamentally also a question of democracy. Uh, so those are, that's how I sketch kind of how do we manage that fiscal policy space. And then we can talk mm -hmm. about the resources and we can talk about countries, the difference between countries like the U.S., Japan and so on that have large fiscal spending capacity and countries like uh, many countries in the global south that have very limited 
fiscal policy space. We can talk about why in the first place they have limited fiscal policy space. Mm. How do they reclaim and acquire a high degree of monetary sovereignty? Uh, and, and, and that's where we get into really complicated historical uh, issues that are often shoved under the rug and, and, and ignored in these conversations about uh, climate change and, and decarbonization. Absolutely. Let's talk about those resources, because when you were talking about productive capacity, sort of one of the things that came to mind as well, say you have, you invest in the manpower, you invest in the engineers, you invest in the education, all this yes. kind of stuff. When you've got the vast majority of the um, minerals and materials that we need for a renewable economy um, located in different parts of the world, located in many parts of the world where China sort of has its hold on those nations and uh, lawmakers and economies, surely that renders the productive capacity question a little bit complicated or nuanced, at least. Sure. So when we talk about productive capacity, it's several components. Mm -hmm. There's the the skilled labor, which is also producible via investment in education and technical training and research and development. So that's not per se material resources or minerals per se. But then there's the mineral resources, which is constrained and limited and has very severe ecological consequences. And I'll address that. And there's the logistical supply chains component, which also is part of what I call productive capacity. Now, logistical supply chains, there's opens up several questions. I'll mention a couple of them briefly so we can zoom in on the resources quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, there's this last 30, 40 years worth of globalization where we went into this extreme version of this just-in-time supply chains as opposed to just-in-case supply chains. And, and now we're rethinking this uh, thanks to the, the pandemic disruptions, the Ukraine conflict that disrupted uh, shipments from the Black Sea, energy and commodity prices. So you hear Europeans in particular explicitly, explicitly talking about technological sovereignty, repatriating strategic industries, on the European continent, the Americans are doing the same, repatriating high-tech industries away from Taiwan, away from China, mm. closer to home in a sort of North American hub of strategic manufacturing. So that is, that is changing uh, because we learn from, from the pandemic and from the, from the conflict and, and the Ukraine. So logistics uh, and supply chains are important. But the resource part is really critical because it's not just about the uh, what we can do in the U.S. or the U.K. This is a global question. Uh, mm -hmm. And right now I see the world sort of uh, transitioning to a different kind of globalization um, after the 2008 crisis, the pandemic, and the, the Ukraine conflict with this um, focus on just-in-time versus just-in-case supply chains. I see the emergence of three major hubs, um, not isolationist hubs of each country producing for itself, but rather hubs of strategic cooperation. One would be in North America, dominated by the U.S., with its neighboring, let's say, satellite countries, including the Latin American uh, region. Uh, one emerging in Western Europe with the EU dominating um, it economically with its satellite uh, regions and, you know, some in Eastern Europe increasingly and, and North Africa and the Middle East to some extent and via France and uh, in particular some of its former colonies in, uh, in, uh, in Africa. And of course, the Asian hub dominated by China with Central Asian countries uh, around it and all the way to Russia, given the, you know, uh, 
the alliances that are that are forming. And to me, that leaves, you know, the global south as the non-hub part of this new global economy. And mm-hmm. all three hubs are doing uh, exactly what everybody should be doing, including the African continent. They're focusing on food sovereignty, which they already have, typically. Uh, they're focusing now on energy sovereignty, which, as you know, in, in Europe, this is a, a very uh, serious problem. And they're focusing on technological sovereignty. Europe is explicitly talking about it. The U.S. is doing it uh, as well. And they're counting on the global south, the African continent in particular, to remain in the same position as the place for extracting raw materials for the global economy to fuel their economic growth and economic development as the place where they will dump the surplus manufacturing of their high-tech products uh, and consumer goods, and as the place that will be the hub for low-value-added manufacturing, assembly line manufacturing, obsolete technologies that we don't really need in the U.S. or the U.K. or in France that can be assembled somewhere else, right? Non-strategic. And to me, and this is what I keep saying to um, leaders in, in the global south as much as I can, is that if you don't have a strategic vision for yourself and a 50 to 100 year vision, you're certainly going to be part of somebody else's strategic vision. Mm. And we know for sure what the strategic vision of the U.S. is. It's not about next year or five years ahead. It's 50 to 100 years ahead. Obviously, China, same thing with its Belt and Road Initiative. It's a, it's a country that's thinking 50 to 100 years ahead in terms of where it positions itself economically and, and so on. And as a result, how to fuel itself literally with minerals and resources to sustain its economic position. And Europe obviously is doing the same and has been doing the same for a long time. So as long as the global south remains kind of passive in this global transformation that's unfolding uh, before our own eyes as we speak, um, we're going to see the continuity of the same hierarchical relations that we've seen during colonial times and unfortunately during post-colonial times to this day. So there's an opportunity, but it takes leadership. It takes uh, strategic um, cooperation uh, to reposition the global south as another hub and partner with everybody else, right, on equal terms, right? Uh, Mia Motley, the the prime minister of Barbados, repeats this beautiful line uh, that is uh, purely from from a Barbados uh, tradition from the early days of independence, friends of all satellites of none. We'll cooperate with England, Germany, Japan, China, the U.S. We're friends of everybody, as long as it's cooperation, right? Not hierarchical, extractive relations. And and I think that that has to be kind of the underlying message of global geopolitics, because we're all in this together. We're going to have to move forward, especially on the climate front with, with this. So now the resources. I wanted to preview this with, uh, with kind of the global map. Now the resources are important because when you look at uh, the degrowth literature, uh, some of the work by Jason Hickel and, and others, uh, it's very clear when you're looking at just the global north in terms of what it takes to decarbonize say, the grid and transportation, the amount of mineral resources to sustain the consumption level that the global north has, we may have enough resources to sustain it, but that will be a guaranteed no resources for the rest of the world, right? 
So it will be uh, not right to say we're going to decarbonize, but we're not going to reduce our level of consumption. So degrowth doesn't mean we go back to, you know, not using electricity and go back to living in the, in the woods and so on. Degrowth means you reduce waste. It means you come up with technologies that actually reduce um, the use of materials and you truly produce a circular economy, whereby every time I buy a, a piece of equipment from the store, it comes with a little booklet that says, this is the user manual. This is how you use me. It should also have, this is how you bring me back into the circular economy. In other words, we have to build the logistical infrastructure to truly have a circular economy, to increase the lifetime of the minerals, the precious minerals and materials that we use, but also reduce consumerism. I mean, this obsession of growth for its own sake, as they say, is, mm. is the ideology of a cancer cell, right? So we have to completely rethink What's the purpose of growth, right? Um, from a material perspective, from a quality of life perspective. And, and that's where the growth, uh, the degrowth literature is really uh, critical for rewiring our thinking about economic um, development in the global north, consumerism, and the use of resources. So we're going to have to leave some of those resources for, say, the 600 million people in Africa today who don't have any access to electricity to begin with. Not fossil fuel, not even renewables. So if we're going to bring, you know, the level of uh, access to critical resources, food, energy, transportation, housing, schools, for the billions of people on the planet who don't have it today, we're going to have to share some of those resources, allocate some of the resources away from decarbonizing the global north, which means the global north needs to face the question, are we truly decarbonizing or are we uh, going to you know share the available resources with the rest of the global south and agree to continue on this growth pattern with fossil fuel extraction and consumption, which we know is unsustainable, needs to be phased out uh, immediately. So that's in terms of resources. In terms of the the critical issue of fossil fuels, which is one of the central issues of of climate change, and and it's going to be critical in the next couple of years to to come up with the final decision on what we're doing with our global use of fossil fuels. There's one report that uh, was produced by UNEP, the United Nations Environmental Program, uh, a, a couple of years ago. The last version, I think, came out 2021. It's called The Production Gap. Uh, you can just Google it. I think there's a website called theproductiongap.org or something like that. It's a very simple picture with lots of detail. The picture is looking at how much we're planning to extract and burn in the next 10, 20 years, by 2030, 2040, versus how much we're actually allowed to extract and burn if we're going to meet the climate challenge. And the gap is the difference between the two. And this is not kind of forecast. This is actually signed, sealed, and delivered type of contracts. This is going to happen, right? These are the plans of extraction, uh, funded and, and built infrastructure. Um, we're on track to produce and burn twice as much by 2030 as we're allowed to, and almost four times as much by 2040, which means we're, you know, accelerating towards the cliff when it comes to uh, climate destruction. So that leads to a very simple, you know, suggestion, which is if we're really going to meet the climate challenge, we're going to have to, number one, stop building additional fossil fuel infrastructure because these will become stranded assets. 
These are mm. billions and billions of dollars, actually trillions of dollars that we're putting in capital expenditures every year to build additional capacity to extract and burn additional fossil fuels that we can't afford to extract and burn. So at some mm. point, we're going to wake up and realize we can't pump more oil, more gas, and, uh, and, and burn more coal. So the assets, the infrastructure that we're building will become stranded assets with massive losses to the investors, the shareholders, the pension funds, my retirement fund, your retirement fund, who are invested in these assets. They're going to go from X value to zero. So that's the mm -hmm. carbon bubble, so to speak, like a stock market bubble that's going to pop, except it's related to the fossil fuel industry and all the climate-related activity. So number one, stop building more because we already have a lot of stranded assets as we speak. Number two, phase out rapidly the existing infrastructure and build the alternative infrastructure in renewables. Uh, and that brings me back again to the question of minerals and resources to build that renewable uh, energy infrastructure. The current technology that we have, say for uh, solar technology, uh, is, is great and can take us far, but it's not good enough. And here's why. Because all the solar panels that we're building right now, we don't even know what we're going to do with the toxic stuff in them in 30 or 40 years when they become obsolete. We don't even have a plan. We haven't even started the research and development to bring those solar panels into a circular economy, right? Into a degrowth model. So we haven't thought about it yet because we have so many other issues on the, <laughs> on the, on the, uh, on the front lines of this, of this struggle. So all of these questions require substantial amount of research and development funding for material science research to build the infrastructure of a circular economy and to educate the public and policymakers and the business community in a non-growth obsessed way of thinking about our future. And again, that's where the degrowth thing uh, becomes important. The science is very important. The production gap tells us it's impossible to meet the climate challenge at the current pace. Uh, at the current pace, it's impossible to decarbonize the entire world, including the global south, with the limited resources we have without ecological uh, damage and, and inequality, exacerbating inequality and so on. And I'll just give you one example that's in the process of happening, kind of we're kind of a slow moving, uh, you know, train crash that we're not, not a lot of people are paying attention to. Decarbonizing transportation that's accelerating a little bit in Europe in California and increasingly in the rest of the world and the global north. So millions of cars are being removed from global north streets and replaced by electric vehicles for the most part, not so much by public transportation. Uh, what's going to happen to the millions of, you know, used cars, you know, five, six, 10 year old, you know, cars that, that still have 10, 15 years to, to go, right? They're being shipped and dumped in the global south. Right. So we haven't really solved the problem. We remove the cars from one global north city and we put it in a global south city, still producing the same emissions. So yeah. we have to think, how do we truly remove those cars from the global economy? Not just uh, play a game of, uh, you know, old maid or whatever that uh, that game is called. You just pass the card to different different players. <laughs> so people in the global south and in the global north do need transportation. I need to get from point A to point B safely, uh, efficiently, uh, at an affordable cost, uh, at, a, at a convenient way, convenient time. So if you give me the public transportation alternative, 
that gives me the safety, the 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 the, the cost effectiveness, and and all the things that I currently get with a personal car, then build that renewable energy, green tech. Uh, based public transportation, both in the global north, but especially in the global south. And that becomes a question of who's going to pay for it, where does the technology come from? Now, the global south as a whole has not really caused this problem, right? Africa as a continent today emits the equivalent of what Spain alone emits annually. So this is clearly an industrialized world problem, right? If you think of from the Industrial Revolution to this day, most of the emissions came from the global north. So there is a concept of, uh, of a climate debt that is owed to the rest of the world. So that means repairing the damage. And that's why I often speak in terms of um, reparations, as in repairing a broken structure. Um, today, most people think in terms of loss and damage. It doesn't matter which label you put on it, but it's going to have to translate into fixing the system and it's going to cost a lot of money and the responsible party is typically the global north and, and we can you know jason hickel and, and others have done quite a bit of you know precise research to actually quantify who's responsible for what and, and put a price tag on it and we can sit down and negotiate the price tag each according to their ability so some countries in the global north can contribute partially with debt cancellation partially with transfer of financial resources partially with transfer of in-kind real resources to build uh, infrastructure and things. It doesn't matter what the combination is as long as we truly fix the system and remove the economic sort of invisible chains and, 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 um, uh, and sort of suction mechanisms, which I'll talk about in a minute, that actually suck resources, real and financial resources from the global south continuously from the colonial days, post-colonial days to this day. And, and those are very important because it's like you have, a, you have a bucket and it's got a bunch of holes at the bottom and you say, we're going to give you foreign aid. We're going to give you transfer of technology. We're going to give you debt cancellation. But a lot of it is leaking back out to the global north. So we need to fix that leaky bucket so that we truly build that resilience and build the productive capacity that is much needed in the global south to... To, to transition in a, in a fair and equitable way to, for, for countries that currently depend heavily on fossil fuel as their main source of energy, transportation, and, and so on, heating and cooling, uh, and depend in some cases uh, on fossil fuel exports. A country like Nigeria, uh, what do you do with a country that has struggled economically uh, with colonialism and post-colonialism and so many other structural issues and now you say your main source of revenue for fossil fuel, we, we don't want it anymore. You know, figure out a different way to manage your economy. We're going to have to take that seriously and truly have a just transition, not just with empty words, but with actual action that give countries resilient economic infrastructure that allows them to, to transition. And I'm happy to explore the details of what these kind of structural traps are in the global south that, yeah, that must me... be front and center of our climate uh, policy uh, discourse. What what are these leaky holes uh, in the yeah. bucket? So I'll start with sort of a, a, a joke, but it's a serious. <laughs> um, imagine, uh, Rachel, I told you, um, I, I, I know I, I damaged your, your car or your house or something like that. I'm sorry. I, I, I know it happened in the past. Uh, we'll fix it. We'll, we'll get you through this problem. Uh, I promise to give you 
uh, over the next 10 years to create this fund. And I promised to put $100 billion in it every year to mm. help, you know, fix the problem on a global scale. Um, and then 10 years later, uh, I show up and I tell you, oh, it looks like this uh, fund only has like $10 billion or something in it. I'm sorry. It's been, you know, really rough pandemic and global financial crisis, all kinds of problems. Um, but we'll, we'll do better. We'll create this loss and damage fund. <laughs> we don't know how to fund it, but it, we'll create this other, other financial mechanism. But what I haven't told you is that continuously I've been extracting $2 trillion from you annually almost in the last few years. And that number has been increasing from a few hundred billion dollars, say 20 years ago, to almost $2 trillion today. So it's kind of Extracting insulting, $2 right? trillion from the global south? From the, from the global south. And I'll explain that, yeah. that number. Yeah. So I promised to give you 100. I only give you 10. But I didn't tell you that I'm taking 2 trillion, meaning yeah. 2,000 from you annually. And, and this is where we need to really face this, uh, you know, massively extractive global economic and financial architecture. So that $2 trillion number, if you take... I think, sorry, Kyle, Fidel, before, before, before you explain that, I just want to say to listeners, uh, anybody listening to that uh, joke, which is awful, right? Um, yeah. That's the case right now. The Green Fund was set up. That was a, a promise at COP26, I believe, $100 billion that the Global North would put in. And they haven't met that. In fact, no, it was that 10 was years ago. That was 2009, Copenhagen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. So thank you. Copenhagen, um, that $100 billion has yet to be uh, met. And in the case of setting up more funds. $100 billion a year? Hmm? $100 yeah. billion annually, right? We should have more than annually. a trillion today. Last time I checked, it was $10.2 billion in the fund. Jeez. Yeah. 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 So, so that is, but well, that is meantime, a true we'll story. But in the meantime, we'll trillion from you, right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, as, yeah. As, as a system. So how do we how do we look at those numbers? We have, uh, if you divide the world into rich and poor countries, global north and global south, and you net out all the global financial transactions, net transfers, meaning you net you include exports, imports, interest payment, debt payments, charity, foreign direct investment, all the global transactions, financial transactions, including illicit transactions, um, you find that the global north takes $2 trillion a year from the global south. When I first started looking at this about 20 years ago, that number was $500 billion. And I thought it was big. And then it went to 600, 700. And, and today it's a tr 2 trillion. So if we don't do anything about the, the global architecture, I guarantee you when we have this conversation in three years or five years, the number will be four, five, six trillion dollars. So at the current design, there is no way we're going to put a dent in climate change, even if you give me $100 billion a year in that mm -hmm. climate fund, even if the loss and damage fund, you know, makes it to $500 billion or a trillion dollars a year. If, if the bucket is leaking, you're yeah. still getting the money back. So what are the mechanisms that create that, that leakage? And these mechanisms are, are not new and they're structural and they're by design. So we have to put them up front if we're serious about tackling climate change. So... Most developing countries in the global south struggle with three structural weaknesses. Uh, number one is the lack of food sovereignty. Uh, Africa today imports 85% of its food. The richest wow, I didn't know that. continent on the planet in terms of uh, fertile soil and so on imports 85% of its food. 
when it used to be the breadbasket for the global north during the colonial times. Mm -hmm. That transition didn't happen by accident, and it's not exclusively climate change, although climate change makes things worse and on the African continent, but it's by design. And I can come back and talk about what is the key policy choice that the world made that put the global south in that position. So that's structural weakness number one. Structural weakness number two, lack of energy sovereignty. Uh, and that is true even for a country like Nigeria, one of the biggest exporters of fossil fuels. Nigeria exports crude oil and natural gas. Nigeria today has zero capacity to refine gasoline for its own consumers. It imports all of its gasoline. In other words, you export the crude raw material and you import the higher value added material, petrochemicals, gasoline, kerosene, and, and so on. So no matter how much you export in crude, you're always losing, right? And you're always dependent. And, and that is for Nigeria, let alone for countries that don't have energy capacity to begin with. So that's another major burden. And, and guess what? Just with the first two, there is no country in the world that can function without food, without energy. Mm. Right? It's just you're not going anywhere without food and energy. So that's the foundation. And if you are trapped there, you're not going to go very far. The third structural weakness, which is related to what I described in the case of Nigeria, is the type of industrialization and manufacturing that the global south was allowed to specialize in or told to specialize in. And that is assembly line manufacturing or purely extractive industries with very little value added in the process. In other words, you build an economy that imports high value added content you know, finished products, consumer goods, high-tech materials, and you specialize in producing things that are assembled at best. So you have to import the capital, the machinery, the intermediate components, the raw materials, the, the know-how in some cases, and then you add very little contribution to the production process with, quote-unquote, low-cost labor or unskilled labor, racing to the bottom because you're competing with another 100-plus developing countries who are desperate to get some of those manufacturing units of obsolete technologies that the global north doesn't want or allows you to, to have. So that becomes the third structural trap. No matter how much you export, you're always importing more, right, um, in that process. So these three weaknesses, when you put them together, they translate into a structural trade deficit, importing food, energy, fuel, and so on. And as a result, any country that has a structural trade deficit, it experiences downward pressure on the value of its currency. In other words, the value of your currency will drop relative to the dollar, the euro, the British pound. So now you have a weak currency. And guess what? A weak currency means anything you import the next morning, whether it's fuel or medicine or food for your people, you're going to import it at a higher price. So you're literally importing inflation. And inflation is pretty dangerous when it comes to food and medicine and fuel because you get social unrest. You get pressure on the government to do something about it. So what does the government uh, decide to do? They decide, well, we're going to step in and subsidize the basic necessities, put it on the government uh, you know, uh, budget, Tab. and we're going to ask our central bank to do something about this exchange rate. So the central bank does something about it. They say, okay. To artificially fix the exchange rate at a stable level, we're going to have to have dollars 
or, or euros or Japanese yen or British pounds to defend the value of the currency. Dollars that we don't have in the first place. So we're going to have to borrow those. And next year, we're going to have to borrow again and again and again to sustain those. Unless we address those, the leaky bucket situation, unless we invest in food sovereignty, energy sovereignty, and a different kind of industrialization. But that's been something that hasn't happened in the global south for a variety of reasons. So that also triggers a whole set of policies across the global south in terms of what government should do to sustain that artificially high exchange rate and, and, and perpetually try to deal with this rising cost of uh, living for, for, for its people. So then the entire government policy becomes rewired and obsessed with earning foreign currency reserves to defend the exchange rate and to pay for the external debt because you're paying for it with interest, right? So what do you do? You're told there's a, a very basic sets of policies that the IMF typically recommends and mainstream economists tell you this is the only way out. There is no alternative, right? The, the TINA approach. Well, to earn more dollars, uh, why don't you bring a lot of tourists, right? They bring economic activity. Uh, they bring uh, euros and dollars. And, and it's a win-win, except the millions of tourists that you're bringing you're going to have to feed them, you got yeah, house yeah. them, transport them, heat and cool the hotels and import fancy equipment for entertainment and transportation. So it triggers those three weaknesses again. So it looks like a solution, but it actually reinforcing the trap. But if you have food sovereignty and energy sovereignty, of course, tourism is great, right? As long yeah. as it's sustainable and all of that. We can talk about ecotourism and things like that, but that's not what we've been doing. Just tourism. Uh, and you become dependent on that tourism. Uh, the second thing is recommended is export-oriented growth. Well, the problem with export industries, as I described a minute ago, if you're importing all the capital and the energy and equipment and exporting low value added, the more you accelerate that type of exports, the deeper you get in the trap. So it's not a solution. Foreign direct investment. Let's bring multinational corporations. It's actually worse than that export-oriented growth because at least the export-oriented industry, they reinvest their profits domestically. Export uh, Foreign direct investors, they do the same as that low-value-added manufacturing industry, except they repatriate their profits too and, because they're part of a global uh, you know, multinational uh, system. So it turns out all of these you know, quote-unquote solutions are actually structural traps that lead eventually to unsustainable levels of debt. And when you have a COVID crisis that shuts down the global economy, you're trapped. This is unfolding as, as we speak. So to me, the, the solution is in addressing those, the, the leaky bucket situation. Invest in food sovereignty. Invest in renewable energy sovereignty. And invest in a different kind of industrialization. But you're going to have to have non-austerity-based approach to how you solve these problems. And I'll... Just zoom in because in the interest of time, I'll zoom in on just the food issue because it's, it's puzzling to a lot of people. Why is it that countries that used to export massive amounts of food during colonial days all of a sudden couldn't produce food for themselves? And it started as soon as most of the African continent became independent. When the Europeans met in Rome to discuss the Treaty of Rome at the time in the mid-50s, they said we can't depend on the former colonies on our own food security. So we're going to have to invest in our own food production, food sovereignty. And that came out of it, that conversation cap, 
which is the common agricultural policy, the EU's cap, which heavily subsidizes the uh, production of uh, core crops, strategic crops in Europe, um, wheat, corn, uh, soybean, and, and so on. And as a result, it wasn't, by the way, just Europe. The Soviet Union was doing the same, hence Russia and the Ukraine and their role in the global food system uh, in terms of wheat and, and so on. The U.S. was doing the same. Japan was doing the same. All the Australia, so all the big countries in the global north invested in their own food sovereignty because it was a question of national security too. Right? They used to say at the time, free trade in everything but arms and farms, you know, uh, arms as in weapons and farms. So, well, we're not going to negotiate those two items. So when global North producers are now heavily subsidized and global South producers are not, they can't compete on a global scale. So exports from North African wheat producers, for example, are not going to find any buyers around the world because the Ukrainian wheat and the French wheat is much cheaper than the American wheat. So what happens Hang to on. those farmers? Sorry, I have a question there. You said Africa, though, Im imports... 85% of its own food, if there are no buyers for African wheat, for example, because Europe, yeah. Australia, Japan, US are subsidizing their own production, yeah. Yeah. why aren't the nations of Africa also buying that? Are they importing They're cheaper importing the cheaper, the cheaper wheat right. from the Ukraine and Russia and, okay. and the rest. But here's what okay. happened to the farmers that used to produce that wheat and corn and so on. They mm -hmm. lost their livelihood, so they have two choices. You either switch to producing cash crops for exports strawberries, bananas, you know, leafy greens that the global north uh, is more than happy to import. And they, they sell at a, at a decent price, um, but there are issues there. Or your other choice is to just give up and move to urban areas in the newly uh, developing tourism and manufacturing industries of the 1960s and 70s in the global south, which is the assembly line manufacturing and the mining yeah. and the tourism and all that, which creates that structural trap. But here's the thing about cash crops, uh, the tomatoes and the bananas and the strawberries. They're massive consumers of water in, in countries that are water stressed. They require uh, pesticides and uh, herbicides and all kinds of uh, um, uh, ingredients that are imported, increasingly imported. And when you're catering to the global north consumers, you have to cater to their taste, not <laughs> to the taste of the local market. So you have yeah. to switch to seeds and crops that are not native to the soil, yeah. to the climate. And that becomes an endless trap in terms of uh, what, what you're doing with your agricultural policy. So now the agricultural policy of the global south becomes whatever the global north wants to consume, not whatever is actually right. right? So now you export cash crops and you become obsessed with it because that becomes the big revenue uh, stream that you actually need to pay the debt. And that you need to pay the wheat to buy the wheat and corn that you need to import from Russia or the Ukraine or France or the U.S. So that creates that perpetual trap that you lose your agricultural policy. I will say you, you can have a, a ministry of agriculture, but you don't actually have your own policy. Your policy is to do whatever the rest of the global economy needs. That's not really strategic to you. That's strategic to whatever your buyers want. Right, as opposed to whatever your consumers, your economy needs in terms of resilience. And this cuts across the board, not just in agriculture and energy. Today, we're seeing a similar kind of form of uh, green colonialism happening in, in, in North Africa in particular with the green hydrogen industry 
um, that is designed to produce green energy. And, and we can question how green that green uh, hydrogen is. Um, but it's for export to Europe. It's not even to feed into the local grid, yeah. right? To decarbonize the local grid. And with tremendous ecological consequences in terms of the, the, the amount of water that, that is needed for green hydrogen production the, uh, and, and the damage to the ecosystem and to the, to the ocean in terms of dumping the, the, the brine from, from the salt back in the ocean and the ecosystem. So lots of serious issues about, you know, these green things. And that's why my message, if I were to summarize everything we, we talk about uh, today in, in, in one or two sentences is you can't decarbonize a system that hasn't been decolonized yet, economically speaking. Similarly, you can't democratize a system that is, hasn't been decolonized yet because you can't meet the aspirations of your people and, mm. and meet their, uh, their needs in terms of food or housing or quality of life. If your economic system paralyzes you and prevents you from serving those needs and requires of you to serve the needs of the global supply chains in, in manufacturing is, or energy and so on. Is there a way for the global south to take the charge on decolonization or are they going to have to wait for the global north uh, to extend that offer given you know the debt crisis and given these weaknesses that you've mm -hmm. described? I think I, 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 I'm always an optimist and I see solutions, but I'm also a realist in the sense of uh, recognizing that those solutions are, are, are not automatic. You know, just one country decides to do it and there will be no obstacles and, and no issues. Uh, you know, there's, there's, of course, technical issues. Uh, I'll focus just on the industrialization part. If we're going to move to a different kind of industrialization, the problem with industrialization for small countries with small internal markets, forget about the technical issues and all of it, is that in order for your manufacturing to be successful and actually lower the cost per unit, you need to reach economies of scale. In other words, you need to produce large volumes. In the current system, you can produce large volumes only if you have access to international markets to export. And now good luck competing with made in Japan, made in Germany, made in USA on the technological front. So you're not going to succeed. You're going to end up industrializing in a way that puts you as one small component of a global supply chain of big multinational corporations based in Japan, based in the U.S., based in whatever. So that's the current system we have. But if you think of, say, the African continent as a whole unit or several units within this large continent, and you look at, for example, one of the structural weaknesses we described, which is the energy sector, you discover that Africa as a whole has all the raw materials needed to actually produce the renewable energy um, equipment to provide electricity for the 600 million Africans and, and beyond. Uh, it has quite a bit of the human capabilities, the engineering capabilities. There's a huge brain drain that is constantly happening. Uh, you may lack the, the, the technological capabilities to actually set up the manufacturing units. And that's where economic diplomacy comes in. That's where partnership with Germany, with Japan, with the US, with the UK, with any country that can come in as a strategic partner, not as a partner that will extract the resources for consumption somewhere else. So if you have a pan-African industrial policy 
what you have then is all the resources, all the capabilities, the economic diplomacy that will bring you technological partnership. And then you have the large market that allows you to hit the economies of scale and lower the cost per unit. And that becomes the first pillar of endogenous development, internal development. Because as I said earlier, you can't have any functioning economy without energy, without food. So then the next pillar of your industrialization is to manufacture not what the global north wants of you, but to manufacture the agricultural equipment that you actually need to reclaim your food sovereignty in a sustainable in a sustainable way. And once you establish those two pillars, the rest starts to unfold because you can't really have education without nutrition. You can't have education without transportation. You can't have education without electricity, right? So you have to have all of the basic pillars at once. Otherwise, we're not going to move forward and build that truly resilient economic system that we so desperately need in the global south, not just for the sake of the global south, for the sake of humanity, because we're all in this together. So the current system that extracts the $2 trillion is damaging not just to the global south, it's damaging to the whole system. We're not going to be able to put a dent in climate change in a global financial system that's constantly destroying our capabilities collectively. So as soon as we recognize that we're all in this together and we need to rearrange our cooperation uh, in a way that builds capacity in the global south, in the global north, and recognize that consumerism, uh, uh, kind of unchecked consumerism in the way that we've seen in the last uh, century in the global north is just not sustainable. It's, it's, the numbers don't add up. We have to recognize that. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. But it, from what you're saying, though, it does sound like the future of the global south and therefore the world does depend on the awareness of the global north as to the impact that they're having and their willingness to give up uh, resources, indulgences, growth um, in order to collaborate on a survivable, livable, even wonderful future for the world. And it's, it produces actually high, higher quality of life for the global north. I mean, this is the yeah, beauty yeah, yeah. about yeah. this approach because... The more we invest in the care economy, caring for people, caring for the planet, caring for the children, the higher the quality of life you'll have in, in, in the global north. But the more we invest in producing more stuff, the, the less quality of life we have. This is what we've learned from ecological economics, from the degrowth literature, from, uh, from psychology. We know that we're not happier with more stuff, right? We think it makes us happy, but... You know, I'm, I'm not the, the expert here. You can interview the experts on, on consumerism and all of that. We know it's not good for us. So let's yeah. go for the thing that's actually good for us uh, as, as a humanity, global north and global south. It, and I, I, I feel it's within reach. I mean, I'm, I'm realist and I, I know we can do it, but it's going to have to uh, be a, a, an issue of awareness and recognition that we're moving towards the cliff. When, when the beautiful, you know, space is in the other direction and that we can, you know, all kind of make it to that better place that's right there within reach. We're just moving in the wrong direction somehow. Oh, Fidel, amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to explain all of that so thoroughly and so clearly as well today. That was just an astonishing amount of information. And thank um, you for doing this work because, you know, we, we need these platforms for public discourse uh, the, away from the kind of uh, uh, sound bites that you hear from uh, uh, 
you know, the, the, the usual media circles that don't really get to the issues, don't address the, the structural historical patterns uh, that, that create this path dependency that locks us into the wrong direction. As soon as we recognize them, we say, oh, we can actually change direction and, and we can get to a better place. So these platforms of conversations uh, within the academic community, the scientific community, the, the public discourse, really, because we're, we're all in this together. Thank you for, for doing this uh, podcast and for engaging with all of us in these uh, important conversations. Thank you so much. Uh, my final question for you is, who would you like to platform? Have you interviewed Ndongo Sambasila? Oh, no, I have not. Okay. Yes. Uh, he is my uh, colleague and he's a Senegalese economist. Ndongo Sambasila would be a, a great guest to give you a, a deeper dive into some of the kind of structural traps that I discussed here, but from a from a CFA Frank zone uh, perspective, and, and that is the, the countries that continue to this day to use the French colonial currency. And as a result, uh, you know, addressing the issues of how do you actually decolonize a monetary system so you can truly decolonize an economy? Uh, that is the question that uh, we still have before us today in 2022 and 2023 and moving forward um, can we decolonize uh, a monetary system like the CFA zone and, and build the resilience that is much needed uh, for the member countries? Amazing. Fidel, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Fidel's research, I've put links to everything in the description box below. Remember to subscribe to this channel if you're new here and share the episode if you enjoyed it. If you loved it, support Planet Critical on Patreon, where you can also read my weekly essays inspired by each podcast interview. The Patreon link is in the description box below. As always, thank you to the Planet Critical community who support the show and make all of this work possible. Thank you all for listening. I'll see you next week.